Heather and I traveled to the wonderful city of Mexico. There's a few people here from Mexico. And uh, when we were there, uh, I had to purchase a extra data plan for my phone uh, in order to use my GPS function on my, on my phone because I'm going to be in a city and I want to get the best tacos and street food and see the best places. And to do all of those things, I am horribly reliant. I've become horribly reliant on GPS, uh, on punching things into my phone to get around. And yet there were times when we were wandering around the city and I realized, oh man, my GPS isn't working, or at least the information that it has isn't up to date and I can't get on the right bus and I'm stuck. And how do I get back to home, to my hotel? Uh, how am I going to be stranded in this wonderful resort town for the rest of our lives? How very troubling. And in those moments, uh, what I found was that I'd have to uh, find somebody on the street around who speaks a different language than I do. I have about eight words in Spanish and I have to somehow communicate with them and find and, and pick which person that I can trust to get me from where I was to where I wanted to go. It was confusing and it was difficult and sometimes I made the wrong choice, trusted the wrong people. Well, you know how it goes. And I think for many of us this morning, GPS or the lack thereof is a helpful analogy of how life works. Because life in a lot of ways is very much like a journey and to get where we'd like to go, each of us needs directions. We have to follow directions. How am I going to get to where I, I want to go? How is my life going to turn out the way that I'd like it to? Which way should I go? What things should I avoid? What things should I pursue? But I'm wondering this morning if you've ever been in a moment in time in your life when you've begun to question the directions that you have. Are the directions that you are following leading you to where you'd like to go? Have you found that maybe the person you've trusted is perhaps unreliable? Or have you found that your own GPS that you're following has been uncalibrated? I, I use a, I like to run. I have a running watch and sometimes I have these runs where I can look back and apparently half my run was in English Bay. And it's because my GPS wasn't calibrated. Have you found that maybe the calibration is off? Enter Psalm 1. See, Psalm 1 is a testimony of a man living under the authority of God's word. And it's like he's shouting out on the sidewalk of our lives saying, here is a trustworthy GPS. Here is one that you can follow, a set of instructions that you can reliably build the edifice of your life upon. Come, learn from the word of God. So this morning, Here's my prayer for you. My prayer is that if you are feeling lost, if you're feeling confused or discouraged in your own life, that you would begin to doubt the voices on the sidewalk you've previously trusted. You begin to doubt them and to look for a better set of directions that is found in the word of God in the Bible. So we're going to look at three points this morning. We're going to look at delighting in God's word, flourishing under God's word, and evaluated by God's word. So consider our first point with me, delighting in God's word. Now, if, if you've been familiar with the Bible or if you've ever read other portions of the Psalms in particular, you may recognize that Psalm 1 is a bit different as a Psalm from some of the other Psalms that you may have read. It's not an emotionally laden confession. Uh, it's not a cry of desperation like some of the others. Uh, it's not a raw statement of faith in times of unbelievable difficulty like many of the other Psalms are. And that's because Psalm 1 is a wisdom Psalm. 
It's a wisdom psalm. And a wisdom psalm is a carefully constructed work of poetry that communicates how life ought to work best. How life works best. How we can get from where we are to where we'd like to go. And the whole history of God's ancient people is really all about talking about what the best way that life works actually is. It's predicated on the belief that life lived in obedience to God's word is best. There is a way that the world works and it's according to the word of God. In the whole history of of Israel, the people of God, um, there's this moment in time and God reveals himself to Abraham and his descendants at the beginning of the nation. And he did this for a reason. He chose them to be a blessing to the world around them as they shared the truth of God that they'd received with others, as they lived differently in the world according to God's word in contrast to those that were around them. This is a really important moment in human history, Christ City. It's a moment of time when this light of God's good purposes for humanity start to shine in a world of darkness. It's a point of time when something sure and steadfast that actually worked was revealed to humankind. Oh, we can follow this. It goes where we'd like it to go. And it stood in sharp relief to the darkness of the world around them. And believe me, Christ City, the ancient world was a dark place that you would not recognize. In those days, you have to imagine a world where might made right. You have to imagine a world where children were often murdered at the parents' whim. Whether they wanted this child or, or wanted this one or didn't want this one. A time when parents would sacrifice their children alive to their deities. A time when the bodies of slaves were treated like outlets for physical pleasure for those who had power. It's a time when the poor and the weak did not have rights as we become accustomed to them having in the world that we live in today. But into this world of darkness, God in his mercy and his compassion began to reveal truth, beauty, life according to what is good, what actually is right, what actually does lead to flourishing life. And he commanded his ancient people to love him with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and to carefully obey the law that he had so graciously given them. To follow it, to be a light in the darkness, in the midst of this ancient reality. And this is the context that is a background to Psalm 1. That is all that is going on in the minds of the people of Israel as they come to this Psalm 1. And it's why the psalmist is rejoicing in the word of God. And he says in verses 1 to 2, Blessed is the man, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The first word of this psalm in Hebrew is the word ashray. And ashray, if you translate it into English, can be translated loosely to, to blessing or to happiness. It communicates the happiness of the person who is living life according to what is good and beautiful 
and true. That's the blessedness that's talked about in this psalm. It's true happiness. Who doesn't want true happiness? Do you guys want true happiness this morning? I want true happiness. It's not happiness in terms of mere emotional hype. That's important to note. It's not happiness without sorrow, but the happiness of a deep satisfaction that comes from living life well. And what does this blessed person do? I mean, I want that, you want that. So what does this blessed person do? Let's look at this psalm. He does a few things. Four, he walks not in the counsel of the wicked. He stands not in the way of sinners. Sits not in the seat of scoffers, but delights in God's law. Three negatives, one positive. The blessed person both dissociates themselves in some ways from this world, and associate themselves with God and with his word. And I think that's striking. As I've been wrestling with this this week, I've been confronted and challenged by this psalm. It's amazing. I get to preach God's word. I get to open up the Bible. But very often I find that I'm just incredibly convicted as I open up the text that I I have to, to share with you guys on Sunday morning. Because I think there's a very strong warning for us in these words that I believe we all need to hear. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. See, in Hebrew, walking is a way of referring to living. And counsel is about who you look to for guidance. So if we're going to revisit the GPS illustration I used at the beginning, the blessed person doesn't listen to just anyone's advice from the street of their lives. They don't just listen to anyone's advice. To be the blessed person, they're particular about who they listen to, blessed is the one who walks not at the counsel of the wicked. And there's a reason for this, because the psalmist knows that a radically different set of morality, a radically different goal, radically different life purposes govern the lives of those who have rejected God's word from those who delight in God and love his word. It's a different direction, different points that are directing each of those lives. And Christ said, that's important for us to grapple with this morning. Our lives are governed by different realities in the world around us. Isn't that true? For those who are wealthy, we're called to live modestly and generously for the glory of God. That's a different direction, a different purpose. For those who are poor, we're called to put our hope in Jesus, to, to focus our time and energy on seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and not merely putting our hope in wealth and riches. For those who are single, we're called to be chaste, to honor God with our bodies and not live for our own feelings or desires or pleasures, but for him. For those who are married, we're called to love our spouse and our children according to God's word and for his glory above all things. For those who are retired, we're called to live for the glory of Jesus Christ, not merely for our personal comfort. So different, isn't it? All these things are just examples of different goals and directions and morality and ethics that govern the lives of the people of God. And the world does not share these priorities. So when we go to the world for counsel from those that do not love God and his word, they will lead us inevitably by degree, little by little, in ways that maybe we don't recognize immediately, away from God's word. And away then from the blessing 
and the flourishing that this psalm talks about. But the psalm warns about a lot more than wicked counsel. Look back at verses 1 and 2 for a moment. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. We'll stop there. Notice the progression. This is describing someone who, who is walking, right? In the counsel of the wicked, and then slows to a stand in the way of sinners, and then ends up sitting, but in a position of a mocker, somebody who just throws stones and, and mocks and makes fun of and, and reviles the word of God. You see the, you see the direction from, from the, the movement towards the slowness, towards settling against God's word. And again, this psalm struck me this week. It, it really challenged me because I think the word of God is calling me and calling you to deeply consider then who we spend our time with. The progression describes someone settling into the community of those who are opposed to God. I think it challenges us to reckon with the reality that our community as human beings really, really matters. Those who your life is built around really, really matter in your life. And the wise, blessed person cultivates love for God, cultivates obedience to God's word in relationship with other people who do the same thing. Do you see that? But the foolish person, they drift further and further away from God and his word into community with those who are opposed to him. And I know that we encourage people all the time here at Christ City Church to befriend those who are not yet followers of Jesus. And I want to stand by that. This psalm is not saying, do not be friends with those who do not yet follow Jesus. It's not what the psalm's teaching. What the psalm is doing is this. The psalmist is urging us, urging us to carefully consider, to pay attention to what community is forming you in your life. The community built around the word of God or the community that is opposed to the word of God. And that's what we must consider. That's what the psalmist is telling us. And I think the reality is that if I were to ask you, and we were to talk about this, I think you know by experience that the people that you spend time with can have an incredible influence on you in your life. What you think about, the things that you pursue, various intangible effects that trickle down and accumulate in your life. And they can either stimulate your love for God and your trust in his word, or they can pull you away from him. I think this is why in his letter to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul, much later in the, in the story of the Bible, he told the church in Colossae, in Colossians 3.16, he said this, he said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let this become a community of people at Christ City Church where the word of God dwells within us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. I think Paul instructs the church because he wants us to be a community of people that are formed here under the word of God together. And he knows that precious Christian fellowship is powerful to form us to love God, to flourish under his word. So let me ask you, Christ City, which community have you chosen? Which community in your life are you pursuing? It's a warning to consider in this psalm. 
So first, a blessed person, the truly happy person in this world, they dissociate themselves from the wicked. But second, they associate themselves with the word of God. Look at verse two. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. This law of the Lord is the Hebrew word Torah. It's the word for instruction. It's the instruction that is a revelation from God into our humanity that's in darkness, teaching us how to live our lives as human beings. And this instruction is found in the word of God. It's in the Bible. The blessed person doesn't allow their life to be centered on human religion or mere human opinion, but delight in this revelation from God that is in the scriptures. They meditate on his word. And meditation in Hebrew is this interesting word. It's an onomatopoeia. You guys know what an onomatopoeia is? A word that sounds like what it is, like vroom or, or bang or smack, uh, words like that. And the sound for the word meditate is the sound of the cooing of doves. It's what a lot of scholars think it, it's talking about, the cooing of doves. And the word is yega. So you got to imagine the doves going around, yega, 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 yega. Like this. And, and there, you can, you can, you know, we live in Vancouver. Uh, the rats of the air make their homes all over the place. And, uh, and you hear them as they go about their business constantly talking to themselves. These doves are constantly talking to themselves in this quiet way. What the psalmist is describing is a person who goes throughout their day and talks to themselves about what the word of God says. A person who lives in their day, not just in the big picture moments, but throughout their day wondering, how does the wisdom of God apply to this decision that I have to make right now at work? What does the word of God have to instruct me right now? In my set of priority lists, as I begin my day, how does the word of God come to bear on shaping that priority list this, this morning as I'm looking at it? And the decision I have to make at work, in my interactions with coworkers, as I go for groceries, instruct my children, whatever it might be, how does the word of God teach me in this? What might it have to say? There's an exercise of a faithful churning, again and again and again, this meditation on the word of God. And for each of these choices, the blessed person puts their trust finally and decisively not in experience, not in their emotions, not in human opinion, but in the revelation of the word of God. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The psalmist says he delights in the law of God. Isn't that interesting? Of all the words that the psalmist could have chosen, he, he treasures, he, I don't know, he, he prioritizes but he chose this, this deeply evocative word. He delights in it. In another psalm, he talks about how it's more precious to him than gold or silver. This, the word of God. They're ravished, I think, by the moral beauty of the word of God as they study it. They love it and they strive to put it into practice. I think that's striking for us. Maybe we have a casual acquaintance with the Bible many of us, but do we delight in God's word? Are we ravished by the moral beauty of the God who's revealed in the scriptures? Christy, if I'm honest, I think that our lack of delight in God's word probably comes from the fact that we don't read it very often. 
And we probably don't meditate on it. And we probably don't even study it. And I think there's a reason for that. I think that it's because we're too distracted. So let me be honest for a moment. Um, You know what I find gets in the way of my time meditating and studying the word of God? The thing that gets in my way the most is my phone. I have these awesome Bible apps that I spent a lot of money on that have, you know, all this information and all this stuff for study. But if I try to read my Bible on my phone, it's distracting me because a message pops up. You know, a question pops in my mind that I know Google will solve. You know, I'm curious about this other thing and I go down that direction. I open social media and I start looking at social media and and I find that I, I go to, I think like many of you, social media or something on their phones again and again and again to fill up the space to fill up the time that we have in our lives. So recently, here's what has happened in my life. I had my wife put a five-minute limit on all the social apps and YouTube apps uh, type things on my on my phone. And uh, and then I gave her the, the password. It's like, here, Heather, you put the password in, and she did it, put the password in. And what's happened is that she's forgotten the password. <laughs> and let me tell you, her forgetting the password has been this tremendous grace for me in my life. It's been a really wonderful thing. And I find that when I sit down, I'm like, oh, well, I guess I'll open the Bible app. Or I guess I'll open this book that I want to be reading and studying. It's been very helpful for me. It's, It's not an especially elegant solution, but I share it just to remind us as a church, there are concrete things that we can choose to do in our lives to put some distance between us and the distractions that are filling us up with things that are not giving life. Because does Instagram really give you life? Do these other apps really give you life? They don't. They tend to take it from you. They tend to take it from you. So imagine a world, this is the imagination moment, imagine a world where Christ City Church is not distracted. Where we love and study, and meditate on the Word of God, where it forms us as human beings here so that our lives start to look truly different. What would that do for our witness in Vancouver? What what would that do for us shining the light of showing there is a gracious and a good God who has a better way to live according to his Word? Blessed is the man who delights in the law of God. The thing is, the psalmist is very clear. This delight is a fruitful delight. It doesn't lead us to fleeting emotions or just enjoyable pleasures that quickly pass away. It leads us to deep, lasting, flourishing that weathers the storms of life because its roots go deep. Look at verses three to four in our second point, flourishing under God's word. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff the wind drives away. It's a powerful image, I think. It's a tree, old, rooted, strong on the riverbank with the roots that go down deep, fruitful. You go there in season, you collect the apples that you know are going to be there. It's something wonderful and productive. And on the other hand, the wicked are like chaff. In the process of removing grain from wheat, what happens is that this this dusty, loose pieces of of really just the, the 
throw away parts of, of the grass, come to the surface, and the wind catches them and carries them away. So Christ said, which direction are you following in your life? The one that leads to the fruitful tree or the one that's like the chaff that is blown away and gone? See, many disastrous paths in human life seem very good in the moment. They taste good. They feel good. You think they're going to get you where you want them to go? But will they stand the test of time? Will they hold up at 30 or 40 or 50 or 80 years of age? Will they carry you through times of suffering as well as through those times in life when it's easy? Christ City, it is remarkably easy to live life when you're winning. But you will not always win. And Jesus, at the end of his most famous section of teaching in the Bible called the Sermon on the Mount, he sounds remarkably like Psalm 1. And he says this, he's explicit about the wise person's ability to withstand the storms of life in contrast to the foolish person. He says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. That's so important. Not just hearing and knowing, but hearing and doing. He will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. See, over the years of a person's life, the directions that you have followed will become apparent. See, Jesus said in Matthew 11 that wisdom is proved by her works. And the direction that you go over time will accumulate and build to something or to the other. One, flourishing, blessedness before God. One, disaster. And why is that? How can that be? Why could the psalmist say this? He says it because he's so confident the word of God is trustworthy, that it's good, that it aligns with the grain of the universe, of reality itself, and that where human opinions and directions depart from the word of God, there is only sorrow. See, God's word isn't just good because he said it is good. It's good because God himself is supremely and incomparably good. The author C.S. Lewis once wrote about this and he said this, God enjoins or commands what is good because it is good because he is good. Hence his laws have emeth, that's a Hebrew word for truth, emeth, truth, Intrinsic validity, rock bottom reality being rooted in his own nature and are therefore as solid as that nature which he has created. But the psalmist themselves can say at best, thy righteousness standeth like the strong mountains. Thy judgments are like the great deep, Psalm 36, 6. See, they're delighted, talking to the psalmist now, and the law is a delight in having touched firmness. Christ said, have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? That his law is sound. 
Let the pedestrians delight in feeling the hard road beneath his feet after a false shortcut has long entangled him in muddy fields. And suddenly there is relief. You know, I think that the people who would have first received Psalm 1 are an awful lot more similar to us than you realize. Because just like us, these ancient Israelites were tempted to follow the unpopular, or sorry, to follow the popular wisdom of their neighbors all the time, just like we are. Because even though we see the word of God, it's so tempting to, to just follow the popular wisdom around us. And they were just like us. But the wise among them saw by careful study and practice of the word of God and by contrast with the lives of those around them that the only sure foundation for life was in the word of God. And I realize at the same time, it's a little bit different for you and I, isn't it? Because it's not so easy to see that contrast, right? Like, isn't it a little tougher today to see the contrast between maybe the world and the word of God like the ancient Israelite? After all, you might be saying to me, look, Brant, I get the ancient Israelites watched their neighbors burn their kids on the altar to Molech. And they were grateful for God's law that said not to do that. But we don't really experience that sort of thing in Vancouver. And that's true. And praise God. Praise God. It can be difficult for us to see, to taste in real time how good the law of God is. And if that's you, let me say this. You know, one of the reasons you don't see the goodness of God's word in contrast to our society is this. Even though our culture is working hard to aggressively and rapidly turn away from Christian teaching, our culture is still remarkably Christian. You know, one pastor used this illustration that I find quite helpful. He said this, so that if you pick a bouquet of flowers and bring it home, what you can do is you can have those flowers enter your, your home and fill your home with the fragrance and the beauty of those flowers. And I speak from experience because I, I like to garden a little bit on our deck and Heather picked last night a whole bunch of our sweet peas that are super abundantly fragrant flowers and she put them in our house and this morning our whole house smells like sweet peas. But the reality is that over time, unless somehow those sweet pea blossoms are put back on the vine, they will wither and they'll die. Most of us don't realize that our culture is like this and that many of the good things that we have today are from the fruitful Christian meditation on God's word that has come before us. And we enjoy those things still, praise God. These things have been passed down to us by centuries of thinking and cultural formation that has depended on the revelation of God's word. So I want to confront a popular and apparently historically false narrative uh, that is going on in the world right now. There's a lie to exist today in our culture that is wrong. It's just not true. And it says this, Christianity is essentially the problem with the world today. It's the source of the things that are going wrong. That is so historically dishonest, it's difficult to, to say strongly enough. Because reality is, in fact, that the blessings that we enjoy today are remarkably the fruit of Christian meditation upon the word of God over centuries. See, most of us don't realize all of this. But in fact, 
It's true. So much so that there is a historian by the name of Tom Holland. He's an atheist and he's a professor at the University of Oxford. And when he was studying and he's looking into ancient uh, civilization formation, uh, he was largely kind of following the narrative today. You know, the things that we enjoy today are just the blessings of, of Greek and Roman civilization that have been left over for us. And he believed that until he studied the history of the roots of our civilization. And as he did, he was so surprised that his society in which he lived was not so much Greek and Roman as it was Christian. He said this, In my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept that I am not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. Isn't that remarkable? This man is not a Christian, but he's commenting on the way that his whole society is rooted and built on Christian thought. And the cut flowers that we enjoy today are from the word of God. See, the goodness of a supremely good God permeates our culture even as we increasingly reject his word. But Christ City, there is a danger that we must heed. The flowers can only live so long cut from the word of God. You know, one of the warning signs that we have today that that the cut flowers are there but are fading is that oftentimes you'll talk to people, maybe even yourself, and you'll, you'll decide this action is the right one. This one's the wrong one. You'll have an opinion about morality and ethics, but you find you don't know why. I was talking to someone in the congregation recently, uh, this week, in fact, and they were saying they had a, a co-worker conversation in the break room this week. And in that conversation, these young activist-oriented co-workers were all together and they're talking about how, well, no, I think we do believe that pedophilia is wrong. But as they talked about it, they couldn't figure out why. Why is it wrong? And they have no answers. I think that tells you when we're at that place in different morality, different issues, whether we are talking about something that we are for or are against, we don't know why it's a sign that the flower's been cut from the vine that gives it cause and reason in the first place. There's another warning sign, and it's this. It's the way that we tend to value in our society some of the cut flowers from biblical teaching, but not others. We celebrate things like taking care of the vulnerable and the weak, which are distinctly Christian values. I'd love to show that to you historically. It's true. We can celebrate that, but we can't celebrate and we won't celebrate the rest of Christian teaching. Another warning sign is a celebration of things opposed to God and his word in our lives and in our media while simultaneously mocking biblical Christian virtues and ethics and morality. It's a sign that the flowers have been cut. I don't want to be, I don't want to overplay this. And you know, I'm only 35, so I'm not, I'm not that old yet. And you can't accuse me of being the old man who's just fear-mongering. I don't want to be that at all. But I do want to say this. I don't think we realize how dangerous this is for our society. And there are several times in the history of humanity in the last 250 years where a whole society has turned away from the the fruitful vine of the word of God. The French Revolution, Stalinism, Nazism, communism in its various forms around the world. There's the most radical experiments in turning away from biblicalism and they've not ended well. Christ said, if we're to flourish as a church, if we're to love our neighbors well here in, this, in our city, 
we need to radically reorient our lives around the word of God. I think much more than we are doing. We need to read it. We need to love it. We need to put it into practice. We need to stop being ashamed of what the word of God says and instead recognize how beautiful and good it is. That it's like a life raft for a failing and drowning world. I think we need to join a community group if you have not done that yet in order to discuss the Bible and be in accountability with others. I think we can set goals together to memorize the word of God, to hold one another accountable in our reading. Recently, this last week, again, uh, I started another chat group with the men in our community group just to encourage one another with scripture because we need it. And we need the accountability. Parents, I think you need to teach your children the word of God. You need to realize that we are here to support you in every way that we possibly can. But the responsibility for teaching your children is first of all yours. I want to encourage you to provide them with as much Christian community as you can. And what might you need to sacrifice to guide them and shape them more deeply according to the word of God? I think only in this way will we flourish the glory of God and the blessing of our neighbors if we delight in the law of God. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. And yet it's true, isn't it? That even when we delight in the law of God, there are these perplexing times in our lives when the flourishing's not there. There's these hard moments in our life when though we followed God's word, it seems like the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. It's hard. And that's why the end of Psalm 1 is so Important because the end of Psalm 1 is about hope for those who suffer even though they follow God's word. So look at our last, I promise, very short point about being evaluated by God's word in verses 5 to 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is a declaration that life is not meaningless. It's a declaration there is a good God who will not let chaos stand. It's faith and trust that the dust will settle in life and God will reward the righteous and he will punish the wicked. So be warned. If you're tempted to turn away from the word of God and build your life on the counsel of the wicked, it may go well for a while, but it will not last forever. And one day, Each of us will stand before him and we'll give account to him of our lives. And our lives will be evaluated based on the fruitfulness of our lives. And what we have trusted in and how it has changed us and what it has caused us to be built. Whether the GPS that we have clung to has got us to a good destination. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. See, Christ City, the word of God is a radically humbling word. It's a powerful light shining into the depth of our souls. And it pierces us with its truth. And measured against God's word, there's some bad news. Because measured against this word, we all fail. Deeply and miserably both in our actions and in the desires of our hearts. It's why Paul could write in Romans 3, 23 to 24, 
for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, fall short of his law and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, there is good news for us this morning, but the good news isn't just that God in his kindness and mercy gave us a gloriously good law and revealed it to us. Because if that's all we had, that just means we'd have a perfect standard to measure our failures by. But what we have as well is a gracious and good God who's provided exactly the savior that we need. The one who can change our hearts who can move us away from our disobedience and rejection of God's word to joyful love and obedience of him. One who can forgive us of our sins, cleanse us of our unrighteousness so we can stand before this holy and good God, perfectly justified in the words of Paul because we have trusted in Jesus, our savior. And who is Jesus? He's the word become flesh. The word who dwelt among us. The revelation of God's character, not on words on a page, but in real life, interacting with human beings, showing us this is flourishing life. Know me, love me, obey me. And he says to each one of us, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly of heart and you will find rest for your souls. Are you tired? Are you weary? Are you lost? There is hope in Jesus. He entered this world to pay the price of the penalty that lawbreakers like us deserve. He reconciles us with the holy God. He forgives all of our sin. And he fills us with his Holy Spirit so we can begin to obey him and learn from his word. If you're in a place where you see some of the goodness of God's word this morning, won't you come to Jesus? Won't you come to a Savior who can change your life and make you whole? Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword and it pierces our hearts. And yet we also confess that it is your mercy and your grace that you've done that for, Lord. You've done it for a good purpose in our lives, to pierce us, to show us who we really are and to, to usher us, to shepherd us, the Savior that you provided for us. Would you put all of our hope this morning in Jesus Christ? For those that are on the fence, those that are just so surrounded by other voices on the street corner saying, come, this is the way to live. Lord, would you sow doubt in their hearts? Lord, would you sow faith in their hearts to trust in Jesus? Would you lead them in the way everlasting to the glory of his name?